Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Everybody. Hello and welcome back to the Irish Passport Half Pints, the bonus content that we make especially to thank our Patreon supporters. As we record, much of Europe and indeed the world is in a state of self-isolation to protect against the spread of the coronavirus, including ourselves. Isn't that right, Tim? Yes, indeed, including ourselves. Where I live in Paris has been put into a total state of lockdown uh, for a few days now. So we're not supposed to leave the house without a permit, and we, uh, which we print out ourselves from home. Um, and we're only allowed to go out to do some shopping or a little bit of exercise. And that is going to be going on for the next two weeks minimum. And everyone is saying that it will probably go on for about a month. So it has been difficult, uh, but things are chugging along okay, you know, considering the extreme circumstances. Something really good that has been done is uh, supermarket visits have been staggered. So only a few people are allowed in at a time. So that's really curbed uh, panic buying and the shelves are all full, uh, even toilet paper. Uh, The one thing that's still missing is onions, which was a weird... (laughs) <laughs> which was a weirdly French panic buy item and uh, still no onions left. <laughs> onions. Uh, not to be stereotypical. Is it onions that that keep away the vampires? No, it's that's garlic. garlic. Yeah. I was like, yeah, okay. Maybe the onion <laughs> keeps away coronavirus. No, no, sorry. No, I shouldn't say irresponsible things like that. That's total misinformation. Just well, a joke. Very nice if you have a cold. <laughs> Since we last spoke, Ireland has uh, put in some more measures. Most things are closed. Schools are closed there. The UK is a bit more relaxed. Um, Most things are open in the UK, but there's been more severe panic buying. But we thought that amid all of this fear Mm. and uncertainty and strange times that we're living through, which in Mm -hmm. many ways feels like a war or something that, you know, it's like something that none of us have lived through. We thought we'd look at some of the good news stories to give everybody a lift and a bit of positivity um, because there have been some brilliant things that have been coming out over recent days um, during the outbreak. Right, exactly. So we have a few good news stories for you about how the coronavirus is being handled in Ireland right now. Number one, I'll get right into it. Uh, One of Ireland's most famous distillers have been putting their alcohol expertise to a different use than usual. They have been producing industrial quantities of antiseptic hand gel, and they've been giving this over to the Irish Health Service. Uh, The Irish Health Service is called the HSE or a health service executive. And this is exactly uh, what they need right now. Yes, so this is the producer of Jemison Whiskey and Powers, if you know those brands. Uh, So they have transformed their production and distribution lines, as Tim says, to make... uh, alcohol sanitizing gel and production is starting immediately on an industrial scale and the gel is getting sent to the HSE for distribution to hospitals. So that's great news. Uh, So how about good news story number two? What is it Naomi? Okay good news story number two is the enormous recruitment drive of the Irish Health Service. Mm -hmm. So the HSE launched a huge call inviting anyone who might be able to help with the efforts to sign up um, to be on call. So especially people like retired doctors or nurses or people who had changed to a different 
profession. And get this, 24,000 people responded in just 24 hours. So that's a thousand an hour. And there's even, according to a member of the Irish Medical Organization's consultant committee, Dr. Anthony O'Connor, among those volunteers were 25 Irish people who'd been working in the health service in Australia who signed up with the idea that they could hand in their notice and take a plane to Ireland to help the effort. I actually have a personal connection to this because among the volunteers are my parents. Yes. Uh, So my parents um, recently retired after running a dental practice for many years. So they have decided to put their experience to good use if they can. And they've signed up uh, to be part of the recruitment drive and see if they can be of any help. So I'm very proud of them, if a little bit worried. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Bravo to both of them. Uh, Do they know at all what kind of things they might be asked to do? I mean... I imagine that filtering through 24,000 applications and it might be even double that by now takes a long time. So I don't think anyone's Mm. gotten a response yet. I suppose every kind of medical experience is relevant when it comes to just having people on hand who understand how how bacteria works and how viruses work and how to keep an area um, disinfected and uh, safe. Uh, Yeah, that's it. Like a health service runs on so many people. You know, you need cleaners, you need people who uh, can work the patient information system, people who can call patients in. There's all sorts of staff involved you know in running a health service so yeah all kinds of people needed so that's just really really great to hear uh, fantastic and well done to everyone who signed up and if you want to sign up too the address to go to is hse.ie forward slash on call and you'll get all the information there and how to apply Okay, so let's move on to good news story number three. And this is a really good idea, actually. Um, Helen O'Rahilly, a recently returned emigrant who used to work at the BBC, she has set up a website called localsupport.ie. And that is a website where people can sign up to request help or to offer help to other people. And 7,000 volunteers have already joined. So if you need help, anyone who needs help can text this number 0873658233. I'll repeat it. 0873658233. And you can ask if you need help with, for example, your groceries, if you need them to be delivered, or if you need someone to pick up medicine for you and bring it to your house. So that text, when you text that number, it goes directly to a team of five people, five shifts, up until midnight, and uh, who connect the request for help with the nearest volunteers. Let's hear a little bit from Helen O'Rahilly on this. Today we've had somebody asking for baby milk because she's stuck at house with a child. We've had a woman, uh, 75, who needs her medications from her pharmacy. We've had a chap on his own, elderly, who needs some shopping. So that's the type of thing we're doing. It's not just for elderly people, it's for people like frontline medical staff who might be working triple shifts or double shifts who, who need groceries delivered or a dog walk or something like that or a woman at home with a baby who needs, you know, baby milk. Helen told Naomi why she had set this up. Let's take a listen. Because I was in London for so long, I, I keep imagining what I would be like if I was working in London knowing my, my mother died last year, but if my mother and my aunt were on their own in this, and I'm sure there are a lot of people in the diaspora who were very fretful about elderly relatives, and we've had a fair few calls from abroad basically saying, I'm worried about my mother halfway up the hill somewhere, you know, and we've been able to help, so. Well, bula bust to Helen for setting that up. All right, Naomi, so what's our next good news story? Our next good news story is 
that Health Minister Simon Harris is ramping up testing capacity in Ireland to be able to test as many as 15,000 people a day, which is a huge number for quite a small population. Um, So enormous efforts are going into this, including the conversion of the iconic at GAA Stadium, Croke Park, into a drive-through testing centre. So that's actually already up and running. So people can drive in their cars and they can drive into the parking area of Croke Park, which is like a, it has a free circulation zone. So it's like a continuous circle where cars can go through and they can get tested and they can get their results. And it's also set up in the in Tala Football Stadium as well in the south of Dublin. And this is really important because the World Health Organization has urged all countries that the key to beating the virus is to test, test, test. Right, yeah, and and we've seen a few examples of that, haven't we, already? I think Taiwan has been one of the big success stories of uh, testing. They really brought in testing quite early. And even though they're physically quite close and quite connected um, to some of the earliest and most affected areas in China, um, they have really managed to get on top of the disease through uh, testing. Uh, So that's absolutely great news. Um, If Taiwan can do it, uh, so can Ireland. Okay, Tim, do you want to take good news number five about how how Irish people celebrated St. Patrick's Day? Right. Okay. Now, we mentioned this a little bit on our our live cast on St. Patrick's Day, a live video cast which was bedeviled with technical issues. Issues, but which was great fun anyway, by the way. And if you want to check that out, uh, you can just check out our uh, Patreon page. Um, so Irish people held St. Patrick's Day parades in their kitchens and in their living rooms and in their back gardens um, all over the country um, in w- from within self-isolation. So these were mini little St. Patrick's Day parades and then they recorded little clips of themselves and they put it onto the internet. I think the hashtag was uh, RTE Saint- Virtual St. Patrick's Day Parade. Um, you'll find it anyway if, if you Google it. There was also a street concert uh, in Dublin where, of course, everyone remained very distant from everyone else. Um, people watched from their doors as some people played music and it was really, really lovely. So it was um, it was a kind of special day. I think everyone will probably remember this St. Patrick's Day. And those little mini parades in their own way were kind of more touching than the regular St. Patrick's Day parade because people were still, you know, even from this um, from this really difficult environment, people were still celebrating. They were still sharing in the National Day and they were protecting each other at the same time. So yes, absolutely. Like you said, Naomi, a bula bus, a huge bula bus uh, to all those people. Uh, for our international listeners, bula bus means clap. Clap, clap. <laughs> Something that really struck me <laughs> was um, I saw uh, Simon Coveney, the Taunashta and Foreign Minister, um, and he wrote on Twitter as he was leaving after like a very long day of working in government buildings that he looked behind him and he saw that the whole building was lit up in green and he realised that it was mm. St. Patrick's Day. And I just thought that was the most astonishing um, detail, you know, that the foreign minister had forgotten that it was St. Patrick's Day because he was so absorbed in work. Uh, because after all, St. Patrick's Day is the day of the diplomatic calendar for Ireland. Usually, you know, usually the uh, the the whole heads of you know the head of government is in is in Washington, and every all the diplomats are out, you know, holding parties and and making visits in in Berlin and Paris and all the big capitals. But this was a St. Patrick's Day like no other, and I think it's just brilliant that people were able to kind of roll with that and come up with creative ways of celebrating it all the same. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so for number six, uh, it's not exactly a good news story, but it's a bit of distraction anyway. Um, let's look at the, the politics of all this in Ireland right now um, and how the different executives on the island have been 
dealing with this difficult situation. Um, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar, who is still our Taoiseach, again, um, even though the elections have come and gone, um, he's still our Taoiseach for the foreseeable future. Uh, he made a very solemn speech in the last few days, calling on everyone to do their bit uh, by staying at home and protecting vulnerable groups. And he received a, quite a bit of kudos for that, from what I can see anyway. People were, were quite impressed. Um, let's take a quick listen to what he said. This is the calm before the storm, before the surge. And when it comes, and it will come, never will so many ask so much of so few. Tonight I know many of you are feeling scared and overwhelmed. That's a normal reaction. But we will get through this, and we will prevail. Tonight, on our national holiday, I want to send a message around the world. We are in this together. To the people of China, Spain and Italy, who've suffered untold heartbreak and loss, we are with you. To everyone who's lost a loved one to this virus, we are with you. To all those living in the shadow of what is to come, we are with you. But, Naomi, north of the border, of course, there is a different plan of action in place. Uh, The UK did not close its schools and restaurants at the same time as Ireland did. Uh, So for the last few days, we were in a kind of bizarre situation where mass gatherings were still allowed in Northern Ireland, um, whether they were going on or not, and only a few kilometres away in the Republic, everything was shut down. Um, But as I understand it now, this situation has changed somewhat, right? So essentially what happened was... um the UK, I mean, the London government has been a lot slower than other nations in Europe to impose the kinds of restrictions and lockdowns that we've seen elsewhere. Um, so they're kind of an outlier. But of course, in, in the north, uh, sharing an island with the Republic means that people are tuned in to what's going on in the Republic as well. So people were getting essentially two sets of advice. They were hearing from the Irish government that this was very serious, that the schools would be shut and so on, and and nothing was really coming from Westminster that indicated it was as serious a situation as that. Um, So what happened Mm. was that essentially there was a groundswell of civil disobedience where... um, Schools began to close because of the pressure of parents, um, the pressure of leaders in the community um, that felt that that was the right thing to do and it was it was best for everybody to start self-isolating already. Wow. Um, so what you had was essentially it started with the Catholic-run schools. They began closing and then uh, it spread to the state-run schools. So, for example, there was a school in Derry, um, a primary school, that actually had a suspected case of uh, COVID-19 and it requested permission to close. The Education Authority in Northern Ireland actually refused it permission to close. The principal, Brian Guthrie, wrote to parents and published the letter on the website saying essentially that he'd been refused permission and they were free to make the decision that was best for them. And that was essentially giving parents a carte blanche not to send their children to school. And it was actions like this that were part of this um, kind of groundswell of opposition to the schools remaining opened that actually led to a U-turn in Stormont. So Arlene Foster, the first minister of the Democratic Unionist Party, um, came out and and gave a press conference side by side with the leader of Sinn Féin in the north, Michelle O'Neill. And Arlene Foster announced that after all, the schools would be closed, that the time had come to close the schools. So essentially, um, Northern Ireland now has more strict measures in place than England does. So the the assembly or the executive took matters into their own hands. 
This is, you know, so interesting because there has been so much uh, criticism, especially in England, um, about just a certain ambiguity and a lack of clear directions coming from the government. Like um, the government until recently was saying to pubs and restaurants to stay open, but also at the same time telling people to stay away from them. And really, you know, a lot of people just didn't know what to do and they're very angry about that. Um, but when it comes to Northern Ireland, that carries so much uh, political baggage. Uh, we saw a little touch of, of kind of orange and green politics where the DUP was tending to go towards what the uh, Westminster government was saying and the Nationalist parties were tending towards what Dublin was saying. Um, th that didn't really um, uh, come to fruition like people might have feared. Um, but it still brings up some other things. Uh, if you've been listening to our podcast over the last few years, you will have heard time and again um, sentiments that come from a lot of people in Northern Ireland who feel abandoned by the Westminster government. And, you know, it has been difficult to ignore a lot of dismissive attitudes that have been shown by the current Tory government to some really high stakes issues in Northern Ireland right now, uh, especially concerning Brexit. Uh, so this isn't a good optic. This is a bad time to play around with this uh, concerning Northern Ireland um, for Westminster, uh, you know, because uh, people in Northern Ireland uh, for the last week or two, they've been seeing their neighbours um, in the Republic being told to take all these safety measures. And up until now, they haven't really known what they were supposed to do, especially uh, businesses. Oh, I think really that this is an issue that transcends politics and should transcend mm. politics because it's something that needs to be confronted in a unified fashion. Um, there's, It's not okay to score political points over this. It's, it's a time where science and fact-based responses have to come first. And that is going to be the same irrespective of people's political persuasions. Mm. And I think that that has characterised the response in the Republic, even though Leo Varadkar is in an awkward situation where, you know, he didn't win the last election, he actually resigned and he's just in place pending the formation of a new government. Even though he's in that awkward situation, um, there has been broad support for his actions and support for what he's doing and his and his other government ministers as mm. well and an appreciation that they're trying to do their best and that they have um, the interests of the country at heart um, and I think that we've also seen very positive collaboration with Northern Ireland as well and um, Radker and other members of his government have been meeting with the Northern leaders and trying to coordinate as much as is feasible um, and I think when it comes to this, the approach of Westminster or the optics, as you say, haven't been to take this particularly seriously. Mm. At least that is what the perception has been for those who, who as are, as we say, tuning in to two different messages on this um, from Dublin and from London. And I think that it's just not going over very well. Um, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has a certain appeal in England um, that doesn't translate to the same degree across the Irish Sea. That was always the case. But I think in times like this, you really, public trust is an incredibly important thing. And trustworthiness is absolutely not something that has defined Boris Johnson's career. Um, so I'm glad that, th that the leaders in the North have been able to come together and make their own decisions uh, based on what they think is the right thing for the North um, in, in this time, where, as I say, you know, this is an issue that is more important than politics. Right, indeed. And um, even uh, transcending all this even further, um, the political uh, overview for the future, it's, it's really interesting how people have been talking about it, uh, north and south of the border, in the UK and in Ireland, um, about how, you know, it has just become very starkly clear to everyone how key 
health professionals and people who guarantee the infrastructure of our society really, really are. And these are people who are very often the most yeah. overworked, the most underpaid. And when funding cuts come, funding cuts hit the health service. And, you know, people who are driving delivery trucks or whatever, they could be working on zero hours contracts. And suddenly when society, you know, begins to fall apart, they are the ones who are keeping it all together. And they are the ones out there on the street every day um, uh, doing something about it. Uh, so, you know, a, a lot of people, it feels like, um, are, are saying, you know, this it's time for change with this. It's time that these people get treated properly. Um, uh, also, as a lot of people have noticed, um, that it is possible, apparently, to house all the homeless people um, in a state of um, in a state of crisis. And the question would be, why isn't it possible to house homeless people in normal uh, situations? So that that's clearly a political choice of some sort uh, by governments, and um, it's possible to make a different political choice. And this has brought that out. I think you're. I think you're right, Tim. Um, I think that people have realised what's really important. And there's a realization that if someone doesn't have access to healthcare, it's not just a problem for that person; it's a problem for everybody. Um, and like you say, um, the infrastructure, the essential workers that society runs on, are people like the people working in the supermarkets, the delivery truck drivers, of course, the health service, the health service workers, um, but also you know the the critical infrastructure workers that keep the electricity on, that take away the bins, um, that operate the till, and those people. Um, are expected to keep working, even though even throughout a pandemic, to keep our essential functions going, and sometimes without protection, sometimes under threat of being fired if they don't come to work. And it's clear to everybody that those people deserve to be properly paid in accordance with the importance of their function and to have proper working rights. And that's become clear to everybody, I think. Okay, all right. So let's turn to Europe um, for a quick moment, because of course, Naomi, you are the European correspondent now for the Irish Times. <laughs> so tell us uh, what's been happening uh, in Europe at the moment. Well, my good news story from Europe is that the European Central Bank has made a really astonishing about face uh, just today. Um, So to understand the extent of its reversal, I'll just bring you back quickly to last week. Um, last week, uh, Christine Lagarde, who's the head of the ECB, said that she the, the role of the ECB wasn't to bring down spreads. Um, that is uh, like markets lingo that basically means reduce the cost that countries pay to borrow money. Central banks can do that by essentially printing, printing mm. money. She said that last week. It spooked markets. It was like a signal that, you know, the ECB wasn't that committed to intervening. And essentially what happened is that borrowing costs for the most vulnerable countries in Europe, particularly Italy, shot through the roof. Um, you can find yourself in a debt spiral really quickly that way. That's how the the euro almost collapsed back in the eurozone crisis in like 2011, 2012. And so it seemed like history was repeating. Then today there was a dramatic reversal of mm. that. So the European Central Bank announced that it is essentially setting up an unlimited fund to defend the euro, to stop EU countries from going bankrupt, wow. to stop their costs of borrowing to being too high. So it says that it's going to do whatever it takes. Um, And in order to make that decision, the ECB had to overrule objections by Netherlands and Germany, who are traditionally the more sort of uh, fiscally conservative countries. Um, They're more afraid of the effects of inflation. So um, often looking back to the example of Weimar, Germany in the 1920s, Mm. when the government printed too much money and the money became worthless. So they're kind of scarred by that experience. And they think that um, it's it's, uh, they're more conservative, I suppose, in their their approach. Um, But the ECB overruled them and it said that it's willing to do anything. And this may turn out to be a milestone 
in the history of integration of the European mm. Union because essentially it turns the ECB into a guarantor of the euro. And it's actually a really important step. Wow, that is so interesting. So no more than um, big political uh, revolutions happening in the wake of this, I suppose we could uh, expect some new expectations out of economic uh, functioning in Europe as well. Um, so interesting. Okay, fine. Um, let's move um, even further um, afield for our next uh, good news story. And that is to China. Um, as I understand it, uh, China's mass testing and social distancing measures appear to have worked. Um, as of right now, There, they have no new cases of local transmission, for the moment anyway. Um, China also has massive abilities, of course, to produce um, l um, you know, manufactured goods. So they can produce masks, protective equipment and tests uh, in huge numbers. And they are beginning to donate aid in that form to the rest of the world, which is great news. Yes, yeah, so we've seen um, Chinese authorities start to donate aid all over the place. So the Chinese Health Authority and the Chinese Red Cross have sent doctors to Iraq, Iran and Italy, along with a plane packed full of masks and ventilators. Um, but that's not all. The tech magnate Jack Ma um, of Alibaba has donated equipment across Europe, including to, to Spain and to France. He's also given um, equipment to the United States and tests and to every single country in Africa. Um, not to be left out, the telecoms company Huawei has also donated protective equipment. And my understanding is that some of this may be on its way to Ireland too. Okay, all right. Do you have anything else for us before we finish up, Naomi? A lovely thing, a lovely thing happened this week where, of course, as, uh, as we know, it was a really strange St. Patrick's Day where we were all inside. Um, we didn't have the usual rituals um, that, that come with St. Patrick's Day. Um, and I went down to my front door the next morning and I found that two envelopes had been pushed through my letterbox and they were St. Patrick's Day cards that were decorated in all over in green stickers and uh, green colouring in that had been made by um, the children of my friends, Jamie and Aww. Steve, whose names are Henry and Rosa. <laughs> so they spent their, their day making St. Patrick's Day cards for me And uh, and it was just the most lovely thing. And I put them up on the mantelpiece. They really cheered me oh, up. La Ela of Henry and Rosa. Happy St. Patrick's Day to you if, if you're listening <laughs> yeah. in. So I think we might finish off with um, the last happy touch that has come up over the last few days. So uh, you may not know, but the European Commission, which is the executive body of the EU, um, It gives a press conference almost daily where it briefs journalists on the goings on of the latest, um, you know, uh, initiatives of the EU, whether it's to do with borders or to do with finance or to do with coronavirus, a lot of that lately. Um, but everything has changed because because of social distancing measures, journalists aren't physically going to the press briefings anymore and they're following them streaming live over the Internet. To, in response to these difficult times um, that we're living through, the um, chief spokesman of the European Commission, whose name is Eric Mamer, has begun to add to his usual comments as he as he speaks into his webcam to an empty room. He's begun to read poems at the end of the daily press oh. briefing, um, just as a little encouragement to the watching journalists. <laughs> Here is the latest poem that he read out uh, from the European Commission at the end of its daily press briefing. Okay, now with this I will uh, formally close the midday briefing for today. Now um, I will give a little personal comment again if you, if you allow. Uh, because I have become aware through many, many mes messages 
that, uh, that come uh, to me, and indeed from uh, someone uh, that spoke to me directly, that we are also watched by uh, many colleagues uh, through, the, through the EBS channel, and I've had a couple of requests for another poem. And so, um, for my colleagues uh, who are working in the institution, um, I found a poem which I would like to read out to you. Uh, it's a poem from uh, the American poetess, Emily Dickinson, and it is called, Hope is the Thing with Feathers. Hope is a thing with feathers that perches, perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard, and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. This is a poem on resilience, and resilience is definitely something that we all need in these very, very difficult days. So today my message is to my colleagues who are teleworking. There are 25,000 of them who are teleworking at the moment. We need you. Um, we are here with you and to work, to continue to work with you in order to provide as much support as we can to get out of the crisis. Thank you very much. See you tomorrow. Okay, so we hope that brought a little bit of positivity to you uh, in your self-isolation. Uh, we know, of course, uh, that self-isolation is difficult in all sorts of different ways, but do remember that they are being taken for a reason, and that reason is that it works. Yes, we're doing this for the common good, and it's responsibility that each of us have. And just for ourselves, we here at the Irish Passport hope to be with you in this tricky time for everybody. We hope to keep producing as much content as we can. And if you have special requests for us, don't hesitate to drop us a line. Um, as we mentioned, we did a live stream on St. Patrick's Day that we absolutely ador adored doing. Uh, it was a bit rougher in the averages, but we had great fun and we'd love to do more things like that if, if you'd like. Um, so yeah, we're here for you and just let us know what kind of content that you'd like and we will try and do our best. For now, thank you so much for joining us on this good news edition of Half Pints, uh, the bonus content that we make especially to thank our Patreon supporters. We are so grateful for your support. Do share this episode if you liked it. Slon for now. Slon. <laughs>